you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue through this uh, great Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I've been studying ahead, of course, a little bit, and I know what's coming, and uh, it's not all easy, not all everybody agrees entirely on, and when I say everybody, I'm only worried about the ones that, concerned about the ones who actually believe this is God's infallible word, among even those, there are some things that we will have to uh, deal with that we might not all see perfectly eye to eye, but that's okay. That gives us an opportunity to dig into it a little bit, and there's a lot of good things in there. And of course, we agree on most everything anyway, but anyway, I'm excited about it. It's hard. It's, some of it's difficult preaching, but it's just so profitable. There's, there's good things uh, that we can see, and I'm excited about it. And today, it certainly is no different. Blessed are the persecuted. In other words, be happy, count it all joy when men revile you. That that just sounds contrary to everything that we, to our very nature, right? To be happy when we hurt, and yet we'll see that there is every good reason for us to uh, obey the Lord here. Last week we saw the different types of peace. Of course, we saw blessed are the peacemakers. We saw that there's first of all a peace that we must have with God. If we don't have that, there will be no other peace. Nothing else really matters. Got to get right with God. That brings an inner peace that Christians have. And then that will also allow us to have peace with others because we are not at war inside of ourselves so we can love and have peace with others. And then there's the peace that really only the world understands and that is the cessation of hostilities. Uh, those who are at conflict with God have no inner peace, and so the best they can hope for is that they're not fighting the people outside, the people around them, right? But we know that for a Christian, there is much more to it than that. And we look forward to the day when uh, God uh, reigns in, in full capacity and that all sin has been removed, and then there will just be peace with one another in those uh in the uh, kingdom of God, and we certainly look forward to that. And also, uh, we uh, said we saw that a Christian's main duty is to proclaim the gospel of peace to those without Christ, because much more important than whether you have peace in your life and uh, you're not at conflict with people is are you right with God, right? This will often result in a lack of peace with them. Christ said, I came not to bring... Uh, peace but a sword that is he's saying that when you live when you follow me that the world will not like that sometimes your own family won't like that and that will bring conflict but that's not the Lord's business that is our calling that, as I said there the Lord's business and then thirdly we do not avoid conflict at all costs but we are to be peacemakers when we do what is right that will sometimes bring conflict and we have to deal with that we don't Compromise just to avoid conflict at all costs. Well, probably none of the Beatitudes, as I mentioned earlier, are so contrary to human thinking than this one today. Blessed are the persecuted. How can one be happy when suffering physically? And, and often that usually brings emotional too, right? We, we, we uh, suffer emotionally as well. As we come to understand more fully the scriptures, most of us, I think, sitting here, if you have been in church uh, a decent church uh, in your life and you, and you know the Bible well, you, at least in theory, you understand 
why we should not only be happy but rejoice when we suffer for the Lord. Because we know, as we'll talk about later, He has promised us great reward. If we love Him with all of our heart because He has saved us from our sin. So if we suffer for His namesake, we do that happily because He is more important to us than our own lives, our own uh, bodies in this world. That's why James 1 could tell us to rejoice not only in the trials of life that all people have to deal with, but also to rejoice when we are mistreated for the Lord's sake. It's also easier to know what is right, true and right. But another thing, it's one thing to know what is true and right, but it's another thing to live in light of it and accept the consequences of that. But as we think about Jesus' words here in the context of the kingdom, which is what this whole thing's about, it really starts to make perfect sense. If life is centered on glorifying the one that the world hates, Jesus says they have hated me, of course they crucified him, and so therefore they'll hate you. And if our life is to be centered around our God, because obviously that is the only thing that makes life worthwhile, God created us to find fulfillment and joy in him. And so if we're living for him, and the world hates him, then the world is not going to appreciate uh, us. So it makes perfect sense. And as Christ said, to take up our reward, or take up our cross and follow him, and our reward in many cases is not now, but really is, is in the future life, after the judgment, where we will be welcoming the glory, then That should make it very obvious that we are living for something different than the world, and that in in, uh, repenting of our sin and our sinfulness and turning to Christ and following Him, we infer, sometimes verbally, but just that very act of repentance infers to this world that they are living in sin and are under the judgment of God. Otherwise, why would we repent and trust in, the, in Christ as our Savior? Right? So the world gets it. But they see it. They understand what's going on. And they don't like it. Because we're saying something about their relationship with God is not right. And that they're headed for uh, hell. So again, it, it makes perfect sense. But Christ graciously is reminding us that it's okay if the world hates us and mistreats us and even kills us because the day is coming when he'll make all things right. But this is obvious to us, but think about the Jew in Jesus' day, how they would understand this sermon. For centuries they have been told that if they are faithful to follow the Lord, that there will be an absence of physical problems. The reason that they, they weren't dwelling in Canaan in the land of flowing of milk and honey and 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 uh, we're having the good life is because they had sinned that away into idolatry, and the Lord had carried them off into captivity. But but they were under a covenant that says, "If you obey me, everything will be good, and you will uh, not be controlled by others, but you will uh, control yourselves." And then all of a sudden, as they look forward to this uh, kingdom, this Messiah. 
the one who claims to be there along the way to king, comes along and says that there's going to be a uh, another way we need to look at this thing. He who would be first must be last. To be first, you must serve and you must be mistreated. That you will be at the bottom of the social scale instead of living in a world which you are in control. You are the weak ones. You are the despised ones of the world. And so they had to, that's why the, the Jewish people had such a hard time really grabbing hold of this nature of the kingdom because they want, thought the kingdom was going to look a lot like it looked in the Old Testament. And they didn't understand that that was a type of the church. But the kingdom of God looks much different. And so one thing this exposes is this idea that Jesus came along to offer a kingdom to the Jews so that they could rule the world. Because he's making it very clear here from the very beginning that this kingdom was going to be a kingdom among other kingdoms. One in which we live among others, uh, which we're not always appreciated, but we call that a composite society. See, the, the, the earth, the, the history, man, the history of mankind up until this point, until the beginning of the church, there was no composite society. You lived in the, a, a kingdom, and everybody had one king, and everybody had one religion, and, and the idea that you could have multiple religions in a kingdom made no sense, because everybody had to be true to the king and true to that religion. And Jesus comes along and says, my kingdom is going to be among other kingdoms. It's going to be within other kingdoms. It's you're going to have, he says, render the Caesar what is Caesar's, you have human governments, and they're here for a purpose. But my kingdom is set up among them, among the enemies. And so we have the kingdom of Christ ruling in our hearts, and in this church, the church is a, a manifestation of the kingdom of God, a physical manifestation of that. And so now uh, you have a composite society. A, a composite means you've got different parts of something, so made of different parts. And so we... That's in, in America, the, the Constitution kind of finally understood that you can have uh, religious freedom, and yet you can also have a government over here, and you could worship your God, but you also could be a good citizen. And in the natural mind, the, the mind of, of man most throughout society, even up until recent times, that just made no sense. That's why in the, in the Muslim countries, if you're not, Worshiping Allah, uh, you could, you lose your life, or you'd be persecuted often, depending on how you know strict they were. And that's how it's always been. But, but Jesus is telling us something here that, that my kingdom's not going to work like that. It's not about forcing people into it. It's not about ruling people. The Christian that my kingdom is within you. The church was never meant to have dominion on the earth. Christ always sees it as a persecuted entity. This was always the kingdom promise of the Old Testament, but now they're beginning to see it in spiritual nature. It doesn't look much like um, the Israel of old that set up dominion over people and forces people in or out. It lives among the world of darkness and calls by the gospel people out of the kingdom of Satan and through the gospel, through repentance and faith, you enter into... The kingdom of God. Jesus says, to see that kingdom, you've got to be regenerated, born again. And then you come into this spiritual kingdom where now you recognize God as the only true king and you serve him. 
And yet physically, the church has no authority over other people. We don't try to exercise any authority over other people. We try to influence them. We tell them about the true authority, God. We tell them, you will bow to that authority, to, to him, or you will pay the price someday. But that we don't force that. And again, where we see uh, the uh, really the false church of Catholicism trying to force people into uh, the kingdom, as was the case through much of uh, the Middle Ages, uh, it doesn't work because that's not how we are to be. This is why uh, Augustine, the, the church father of the 400s, uh, and all those who developed this system of forcing people into Christianity to keeping everybody single-minded, and they did that often through infant baptism because you they could not understand the church and the state as being separate. They felt it had to be one. There had to be a oneness or society would crumble. And so Augustine, who was kind of the one, and, and, and Augustine, you know, had a lot of good points, but Augustine, his primary, the big problem he had was that he, as he uh, would argued with the Donatists, who were people who understood that the church was to be a composite society, um, he developed this idea that you, the church had authority, and you had to uh, obey the authority of the church, and you had to do what you're told, as, as it were. And he would use the Bible, he would go to the scriptures to try to prove it, again, because uh, it's not biblical, so you have to kind of play fast and loose with scripture. And I'll give you a couple of examples where he tried to do this. He went to Daniel chapter 3, and he said that pictures the early church when it was weak, and it would be thrown into the furnace. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had an image, and he says, you will bow down to that image. The, the three Hebrew children did not, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And he says, well, that's the early church were weak. You know, those three Hebrew children, they did not worship and, and the uh, authority the government, Nebuchadnezzar, threw, he persecuted them. But he says later on, the uh, church uh, was uh, stronger, and that's where we see Nebuchadnezzar decreeing that no one should speak against the true God. Remember, when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, he acknowledged that the God was the only true God of heaven. And so Augustine says that pictures the church when it becomes strong, and uh, it uses the government to get everybody in line. And we're sitting here in our day, and we look at that and say, well, how in the world? That the Bible, that's not what that, those passages are teaching. But that's, what's, that's how these ideas came into being. They tried to find places in Scripture that, that they could twist. Another a, a place he used was uh, the two swords of the apostles. Remember when Jesus was arrested? Uh Someone said, well, we've got two swords, and Jesus says that is enough. Remember in Luke twenty-two thirty-eight, and they said, look, Lord, we have two swords. And they're getting ready to go to Gethsemane. And he said to them, it is enough. And he takes that to mean that the, 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 these two swords meant uh, the government and the church, and they were to be used together to keep everybody in line, to, to force people into the church, as it were. And then finally, one other example, he uses Paul's conversion as an example of how even God forced Peter into the kingdom when he made him blind. Well, first of all, 
God doing something to get somebody in the kingdom is one thing. To to read that and think that now you have the authority to kill and to persecute in order to make people do what only the Holy Spirit can do anyway is a stretch at best, right? It's misguided. But through much of the Middle Ages, that's why you had the Catholic Church and why once Rome turned Christian and quit persecuting Christians, now all of a sudden, from about five, uh, four or five hundred onward, the, perse- the great persecution of the church is the Roman church. It's other supposed Christians uh, persecuting other ch- Christians. And that's why. Because, because Augustine built this foundation that was developed over the centuries to follow. And so I say all that just to, to see how that people have completely misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. Now there were always groups of people who understood better and were not part of all that. They were not part of the Roman church. They were the heretics of the day. Those who were burned at the stake. Those who were banished and persecuted. Because they would not let their child be baptized into this, what they called the church and so forth. Alright, so that's a very quick uh, look at church history and very, very, very quickly, a lot more to it than that, but it gives you some idea in relationship to the nature of the kingdom that Christ is teaching us. He saw a church that was not persecuting others. He saw a church that was being persecuted. That was the kingdom of God. Those who are weak, those who serve, those who are powerless. And so anyone who comes along and says that the church uh, if it, it should, is looking for control and it should have power is misunderstanding what the kingdom of God is all about. And all that then negates Christ's words or makes them temporary at best. But also you think about uh, like Philippians 1.29 where Paul says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. How can you, how can the church then be killing people if they won't accept what they want them to accept and be suffering at the same time? It's one or the other. But these verses help us see that the kingdom of God will look nothing like the kingdom of Israel under the old covenant, except who is, of course, the ultimate authority, and that is God Almighty. So the first seven Beatitudes then reveal a people who are humble before God and seek his will over their own will and love their neighbor as themselves. There's nothing here of a church that expects the world to obey it or a church that dominates the earth, a church that forces people into the kingdom. You know, and again, that, to think that you can force someone into the kingdom shows you really have no understanding of how someone gets saved anyway, right? Because salvation is an inward work of God where he regenerates us and, and he brings us by faith to submit to him. You cannot do that with a sword. You cannot do that with a threat. You can get them to say a prayer or to, to say whatever they have to say to save their skin, but there's been no inward change. There's no inward life. And so the, the very idea shows that you really don't understand what Christianity is all about anyway, to think that. And so, um, 
there's nothing here of a church that expects this world to obey it or a church that dominates the earth. The book of Revelation makes it just as clear that when Jesus comes back, he will not find an earth that has been Christianized. He will find an earth that is in full rebellion towards it. And he will have his church among them, a composite. They will be there. He will call them up out of the world as he comes back in judgment. But the earth will not be a Christian earth. And so that's one reason why I uh, reject a post-mill look at things, uh, because it just doesn't, I think, mesh with Scripture. But by placing this last, this, this, this beatitude last, he makes the point that those who live by the first seven will experience the eights. It's not an anomaly that we suffer, it's the norm. In fact, it is proof that you are correctly following Christ because, as he said, the word, the world hated him first. And so if you're not being despised by the world, then you clearly cannot be living as Christ is living. Now, it might not always mean that they hate you personally. The Christians have done great things. Uh, there have been times where they have been admired by the world for their great works. But when they are not admired is when they stand upon the word of God and says, Thus says the Lord, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's when the world will have none of it. And so the promise of having the kingdom, we see, is in the first beatitude and now comes full circle is in the last beatitude because all these are describing those in the kingdom. It's a complete package. We can't pick and choose what consequences uh, we're willing to suffer for Christ's sake. Second uh, Titus 3.10 You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. And, and again, let, let's just read that as worldview. Because that's kind of the, uh, the word that we use often today. Paul has, under, has an understanding. It's a biblical understanding of what life is all about. That is a worldview. My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul isn't just saying that because he says, you know, well, I went through it, so you've got to go through it. He's saying that that's the nature of the kingdom. He's basing this really on, at least in part, on what we're reading here today in Matthew chapter 5. That's just God's plan. Jesus isn't saying that we're going to go looking for it. It's just going to be the natural consequence of godliness, and we certainly shouldn't go looking for it. There, there have been those who have, that since they understand that it's the the norm, they think that if they can somehow bring it upon themselves, that, that that's a good thing. Well, you got to be careful there, because we read in First Peter, remember, make sure that your suffering isn't because you're being a jerk or you're doing something wrong. That's not being godly in Christ Jesus. Make sure that if you are mistreated, it's because you're living as Jesus lived. Persecution will always be martyrdom. But it will always make you an object of ridicule. 
And I think we finally come to a point in America where we can say that when we speak of Christ and sin and the truths of the Bible, and we openly profess these things, we are automatically labeled out of step as fanatical, as dangerous to society. Uh, there are those who are losing their jobs for being faithful to the Lord. It's happening even in this country. And it shouldn't really surprise us. I mean, it probably should surprise us how fast it all went in the South. But it shouldn't surprise us because it's always been going on and, and goes on in many other countries, um, even in the world today. So we're no different in that respect. The question is, do you love Jesus enough, though, to lose the world's respect? There are plenty of voices around today that are saying that if the world has marginalized us and don't respect us, it's our fault because we're so narrow. And if we would just be less narrow, if we would be accepting and affirming of sin and of the things that the world does and the world would like us, well, the world really won't respect us. They, 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 they'll be, if we compromise, the world likes it because it makes them feel better about themselves. But they don't respect us because they know what the Bible says. And when we compromise truth, they think they've won. But we don't compromise just because we think the world has to respect us. Because if that's the case, Jesus was too narrow. Because they, they certainly didn't like Jesus. And I think I'll pass on saying that Jesus was too narrow. The world has never accepted Christianity, and it's a misguided assumption that it should today. Now, there's a form that it will accept, but it's a false form. Any any form that the world accepts of Christianity must be a false form, or what Jesus is telling us here is not true, right? So you, you can decide for yourself. But from the moment Adam fell, there has always been conflict um, in this world. And it began with Cain and Abel. Cain obeyed the Lord. Uh, excuse me, Abel obeyed the Lord. Cain did not. And when he saw that the Lord accepted his sacrifice, Cain killed his brother. He worked out that hatred. As Jesus said, uh, Abel was the first martyr. Later, Jesus tells us to count the cost before we claim to follow Christ. He means that if Christ isn't worth some momentary light affliction, then don't bother uh, pretending to be a Christian. Count, so as, as someone who builds a tower, he first sits down and he counts the cost. Can I do this? And he says, look, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, you better understand what's going on here, that I and God, and that I, you will follow me and obey me and love me with all your heart, and it's going to it's going to bring consequences, and you better decide whether you love me enough. So Jesus never said that being a Christian is easy. Titus uh, three, um, no, excuse me, um, first, excuse me, First Thessalonians three three, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. 
So there, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians of the same thing. You knew ahead of time this was going to happen. Jesus has told us. Christ also makes it clear here and, and elsewhere in the New Testament as a whole that this hatred of the lost is to be because we are confronting them with their need of Christ and not by purposely being different or odd or tactless or mean, as I've already said. And there are plenty of those out there who think that um, having a testimony is means you have to be in someone's face and you have to be in conflict and kind of bring it upon yourself. Preaching down to people. Acting like they're sinners. It's like the guy we talked about in the Sunday school in confronting uh, the uh, the gay pride where he, he wasn't interested in telling them the gospel. He just kept telling them that they're all going to hell. Well, that brings a, you know, it might be true, but you're doing it in a, in a non-gospel way, a non-biblical way, and you bring the wrath of the world upon you but not in the right way. You want the wrath, you tell them that they're sinners and they need to repent just as you had to repent and that that's the only way they can be right with God. They'll hate you, but you can do that in a loving way. And so, as we read in First Peter, uh, every accusation against us are, is to be false. We aren't supposed to be, to give people a reason to despise Christ because we have acted in an unchristlike way. If we are unloving and uncaring and judgmental, if we're hypocritical, then we are not being an example of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says there in First Peter 3. Um, in fact, that's, we didn't read that particular passage. Let's turn over there. First Peter 3. And let's start reading in verse 9. I think we might have actually read this last week, but this is uh, goes with what we're, we're talking about there. First Peter three, starting in verse nine. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's read down to verse 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor the Christ the Lord as holy, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile, um, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for evil. And so you see there what he's saying, that if you are uh, uh, doing something that is wrong and you suffer for that, well, then that's just, you should be suffering. But if you're doing what's right and you're suffering for the Lord's sake, then that's a whole other thing. 
If I look at the first uh, chapter four there, First Peter, because this whole section is about suffering um, in in the right way, and it says something interesting here in verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's an interesting uh, verse that I think some have misunderstood. He's not saying that if you suffer, you will no longer be a sinner, and then you'll be perfect in some way. In fact, I think Romans 6-7 is a similar verse. For one who has died, that is, died in the flesh, has died in Christ, has been set free from sin. And again, not in a perfect way. What Paul is saying there is that those who understand, remember, the whole idea is that you had the same thinking that Christ did. Christ suffered because he was going to always do what pleased the Father no matter what the consequences were. And so when we had that same attitude, that same love for the Lord, that we will suffer no matter what, now he says you're, you're going to be one of, you're going to be a kind of person who can have a godly life. Because you're, you now no longer are tempted to save your own skin no matter what. You're not living for pleasure, you're living for the Lord. And now you're getting to the point where you can actually be godly. And I think that's the point there. Um, look at verses 12. Chapter, again, chapter 3. What well, we just read, uh, chapter uh, 3. No, excuse me, chapter 4. Yeah, that's where we are. Uh, this is what we read, of course, at the beginning of the uh, service. So let's not take the time to read that again. But we read there, Paul says that very thing. First of all, don't be surprised when you suffer. And secondly, make sure that when you suffer, it is for because you are being godly and not because you're doing that which is wrong. So you, you, you see how he puts it all together. Um, Luke chapter 9. I didn't put that on the uh, screen, so let's turn over there real quickly. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 22. We'll see something Jesus says here. Luke 9, verse 22. Let's read down through verse 27. And he said to them all, or excuse me, verse 32, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, what Jesus had just prophesied was that he was going to be crucified. And he says, Now, if you're going to be my follower, then... Don't expect anything different. Verse 24, For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The point there is that if you refuse to save your life, if if there's all that you care about is saving your skin, and you're not willing to lose it, then at the end of the day, when you stand in judgment, you're going to lose your life because you show yourself not to be a follower of Christ. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or and, and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And so if you're ashamed not only of Christ, 
but also his words, in other words, his teachings, and you will not suffer, you will not stand true to the word of God, Christ says, I'll be ashamed of you in the day of judgment. Verse 27 then, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And of course, we know that many were alive when the kingdom of God was manifest at the day of Pentecost. Now as we read Christ's words, we, we are, how are we to take those who tell us that if we follow Christ, we will have a, the, our good life now? Do, do we not understand them to be false prophets? Are they preparing us to suffer for Christ or not? And I would say no, they're not telling them, preparing us to suffer for Christ because they've compromised so that they don't have to suffer. Tertullian was a uh, early church father of the second century, and a man one day asked him, "How um, now that he was a Christian, he didn't think his job was right for a Christian. He didn't feel like whatever line of business he was in was really right for a Christian to do. But he says, I don't know what to do because I have to live. And Tertullian, Tertullian answered him, do you? He said, the only thing a Christian has to do is to be loyal to Christ. To be prepared for the kingdom life is to be prepared for loneliness, for being misunderstood, to ridicule, for, to be rejected, to be unfairly treated of every sort. Tertullian was right to tell him, do you have to live? No. You have to live for Christ, and if that means death, that's okay, because that will usher you into true life. And so be wary of those who say that if the lost hate us, it must be our fault. Make sure, first of all, that it's not, that we haven't been doing something we shouldn't. But we do not deny the Bible so that society won't like us. Because this culture will be great, has no problem with Christianity as long as we affirm everything that they say as well. But Christ makes it clear that there are good reasons and promises for living for the glory of God no matter what the cost might be. There might not be many earthly rewards, and even if there are, they will pale in comparison to what waits for us in glory. Let me read to you something that um, John MacArthur said that I thought was good along this line. He tells the story of, um, not the story, uh, the um, the account of a missionary in Indonesia. We talked about this last week. I gave an example of somebody in Indonesia. Here's another couple of guys who are in Indonesia in a um, what in a, in a uh, tribe that had a very strict religion, so that you could not question anything about that religion, or it was a death sentence. And they had many sacred spots throughout the jungle that if you went into that you would uh, be killed and if a baby crawled into it accidentally a child they were to be thrown into the river that, that was how strict they were and one day this this man that they knew was uh, was being chased to be killed for something and they stood in the way told him to run and they stood trying to stop this a group of men who were coming with air, bows and arrows to kill him and the, the men started shooting them and the, the, the 
one missionary stood his ground, and as they, he would get hit with an arrow, he'd pull it out and he'd break it. And he did that until he didn't have the strength to do it anymore, and he died. And his friends stood there and did the same thing until he died. They didn't run. They didn't save their skin. And turns out that while they died, and they, the men who killed them cut up their bodies and spread it throughout the jungle because they knew that they thought that they would be raised again someday, so they thought that that would stop it. And they did all that, but but that did it. That 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 broke their spirit. That that was a testimony that the Lord used, so that eventually that that village was turned to Christ, and many of the villages around the churches were started. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. That look, be faithful to the Lord. You don't know what the Lord's going to do, but but believe, but but be faithful. Your reward will come. The Lord's doing a work. And I thought this was a great example of why even if it's martyrdom that we suffer for, that's okay. And so finally in verse 12, Jesus tells us the posture that um, that we are to have in all this. We are to rejoice and be glad. So again, he's not saying just uh, be ready for trials, be ready for persecution. It's going to come. He says when it does, to properly live as I'm telling you you've got to rejoice in it uh, it says there um, in verse 11 blessed are you others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely rejoice and be glad and that is literally means to leap for joy it was used of a of a calf out in the field frolicking leaping around so he says don't just be happy don't just say Lord thank you uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad to do this, but but people need to see a joy that you're that you you're happy to suffer for the Lord, and that's a strong statement. Any attempt to obey Christ here, whether we truly believe what He's saying or not, is not for obedience if we do it sullenly, if we act like we're missing out, if we do it with regret. If we're miserable, if we're sour when it happens. And that gets, again, as we said, all these things will always get to the heart of the matter. If we love the Lord, if you love your wife and uh, you're protecting her and, and it means your life, do you, are, are you not happy to do that? Do you not do it joyfully because of your love for that person, for your child? Would you not joyfully do that? And how much more for the cause of Christ. And I think that's a good gauge of the strength of your faith and your love for Christ. Are you merely enduring or are you doing so with a, with a radiant joy that others can see? Surely, if Jesus says we can jump for joy at suffering for his namesake, then what should we look like in everything else? I mean, do people see us giddy and just beside ourselves when our team wins when we're doing something we love to do but when it comes to going to church and hearing from the Lord and being with God's people it looks like we'd rather be out doing anything else but see how will we ever jump uh, be glad to suffer for Christ if we're not even glad to go hear from Christ and be with God's people right so again you start thinking some of this stuff through Jesus says, great is your reward. And 
uh, my last thought is that Jesus always has is not embarrassed to use reward as an incentive for the Christian life. I know people who think that if you do, if you serve the Lord with any hope for reward, then, then you lose reward. Well, I, I mean, Christ uses reward often. So there's nothing wrong with serving the Lord in light of knowing that He will make it right. And of course, as we've said before, serving the Lord is, is in one sense, reward in itself. Because to, to please our Savior is a reward. But Jesus uses that as a legitimate motivation. He never suggests that man was created just to follow some noble cause and endure hardship and with no hope of things ever getting better. And it's never, the Christian life is not about that. The Christian life knows that things will get better. That's the whole point. We will see Jesus, as he said a few verses earlier. And for this we need the faith of the prophets who went resolutely to people who did not want to hear what they had to say. We're talking about Isaiah in Sunday school. From what we understand, Hezekiah's son, um, sawed him in half. He, he killed the prophets. But why would you do that? Because Isaiah knew that this life, if this is the best I've got, I, I don't have much. The, the best is yet to come. Christendom, who was an early church father, said, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. You cannot kill me, for my life is hid in Christ in God. You cannot take my treasure, for it is in heaven, where no man can break it, in and steal. And you cannot drive me from the man and friends, for there is who will never leave nor forsake me. So, because obviously they could do those things to them, but they could never really, because his life was Christ, and they, they could never separate him from Christ. And so in the end, I believe that if one is going to be able to follow this principle, they have to have a love for Christ that causes them to see that serving and suffering for him is reward in itself. If you serve the Lord only because he's promised you some reward, then there's some, it's a defective love. Why do you serve your wife? Why do you serve your husband, your children, those that you love? Do you just raise your children because you expect them to take care of you when you get older? Well, that that's probably a fool's reason to do it. <laughs> that doesn't often happen. But no, you do that because it, because you love them. You're not looking for something to get something back. So either knowing God is worth the effort or, it's, or he's not. And each one here today, I think, either knows what I'm speaking of and you understand why we can rejoice in persecution, or you're sitting there thinking, I really don't love Christ enough to suffer for him. You, you know your own heart. You know your relationship with Christ. You know whether he saved you from your sins or not. And so I would just remind ourselves then that if what I've said here doesn't really make sense to you, then perhaps you haven't ever come to Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're still living in your sin. You're still, you have no peace with God. And I would ask you to repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you can have peace with God and He will become your life. And He has promised you glory in heaven forever. 
And to suffer a little bit now, as Paul says, momentary light afflictions, but they cannot be compared to the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. Will you hear the word of the Lord today? We'll close there. Any questions or comments?